Welcome back to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Today I'm here with Brian Pennington. He's the director of the Center for the Study of Religion, Culture, and Society, and professor of religious studies at Elon University, who was awarded an AAR individual research grant last year. He's here to speak to us about this project entitled Natural Disaster and Divine Agency, Hindu Theodicies of Climate Change. Congratulations and thanks for joining me, Brian. Thanks very much, Christian. So you've been working in North India for over a decade, and this AAR project is only one aspect of your study in the region. Can you tell us a little bit about the social context of your research site and what themes you're exploring more generally in your work there? Yeah, I, I will. And I'll start with a place that's very dear to me. My study is centered in an ancient pilgrimage town in North India in the uh, Himalayas called Uttarkashi. And Uttarkashi is a city that appears as early as 10th century, um, as early as the 10th century in Hindu texts that extol its divine power and uh, the presence of deities in its uh, vicinity. Uttarkashi has, in modern history, become a kind of hub on a pilgrimage route that an increasing number of Hindus have done in the uh, Himalayas, a route that takes them to four different sites in, in the quite high Himalayas at elevations of over 10,000 feet. And this pilgrimage route is called the Chardam Yatra. So Uttarkashi is not one of the destinations of the Chardam Yatra, but it has functioned as a, a hub, as a, a meeting point um, and a stopping point where pilgrims um, will spend some period of time and then uh, do, as it were, kind of surgical strikes up into these, um, these sites that are at uh, much higher elevations. I first became interested in Uttarkashi when I was traveling there um, rather by chance in the year 2000 with colleagues of mine. And we, we came upon when our driver who was taking us to these um, pilgrimage destination points, our driver urged us to stop at a, a new cave shrine. So in Hinduism, it's not terribly uncommon for caves to function as shrines. They will house images of the deities. Sometimes um, uh, holy men or women live there and receive visitors. And occasionally these caves will have in them um, images that Hindus worship that are, are called in Hinduism murtis, but in, in caves they are, they are sometimes um, what Hindus call swayambhu. That means they're self-manifest. They're actually, you know, rock formations in the cave, which, which resemble sometimes um, images or um, aniconic representations of gods and goddesses. So our driver urged us to stop at this particular cave because he said it had recently been discovered by villagers and it was a, a quite remarkable place, well worth visiting. And so we stopped at the roadside and trudged about 150 meters um, up into the mountains along a footpath and caved, came to an opening of a cave outside of which sat a, a priest from the village who was blessing worshipers who stopped at the cave. 
And we went inside the cave and, and discovered quite a, a remarkable little enclosure. It's a, a very narrow opening into this cave, but once you get in, it opens up and there's, um, uh, at, the, at the base of it, there's sort of rushing underground river and the rock formations in it are really quite remarkable. Um, and in the middle of the cave rises a, a solid sort of cylindrical rock um, formation that resembles uh, um, the abstract, the aniconic form of the god Shiva that is worshipped all over India and indeed the world. And these, um, these representations of Shiva are called linga. And so the, the villagers had discovered this cave, according to the story that was told at the time in very recent um, months, and um, they regarded it as this revelation of Shiva himself to the village. Now at the time, the village was also um, seeking water. They had been involved in a, a dispute over water for, um, with a neighboring village, and so they they had lost this dispute and and were deprived of access to a river which they had used to irrigate their fields. Um, again, according to the story uh, that was told at the time, the the village head um, had a, had a dream which told him to dig in a particular spot. He dug and he discovered not only this miraculous revelation of Shiva, but this tremendously um, forceful underground river that the village then tapped as a source of water. So it was, uh, it was regarded as a kind of double blessing of Shiva. So this was the beginning of my um, introduction to Uttarkashi. On that day, we interviewed the village head who, and my, the colleagues who were with me were Paul Courtright and Rakesh Rungan, Ranjan, both of whom were at uh, Emory University at the time, very valuable colleagues uh, to me over time. Um, we interviewed the, the head of the village and he told us the story of this, mirac this dream and the miraculous discovery of this cave and, and so forth. And I imagined, I wondered at the time, would it be possible for this to develop into a viable uh, temple complex? And I, and so this is back, this was in 2000. In 2002 or three, I applied to the AAR for uh, my first individual research grant. So it was the AAR that got me started on this project. I returned in 2003 to discover that it had, um, uh, the growth of this, at this uh, temple had mushroomed. Many, many people were stopping, pilgrims who were going to these other um, uh, destinations in the Himalayas. They were stopping along the way and this temple was becoming a source of income to the village at large, and this was quite a poor village previously. Over time, to um, bring the story up to the present, over time this cave shrine has become um, one of the, if not the, most popular and most visited um, sort of second tier pilgrimage site in this region of the Himalayas. So I was quite fortunate to have been there at the birth of this uh, long tra trajectory and at the origins of this story. And that's the, this was in the vicinity of Uttarkashi. That was the reason I started returning to Uttarkashi and became um, enamored both uh, personally and intellectually with the growth of this city. So that's the long um, that's the long introduction to how I got into this particular uh, project. It gave me an opportunity to witness the growth of various 
um, religious enterprises in the city as the development that was um, has been enveloping the region over time um, really fueled economic growth in the city and so this project is about the the birth growth change and sadly as I'll discuss in a moment the demise of many of these um, uh, shrines, many of these places that became sources of income for uh, people in the villages and towns in the vicinity of Uttarkashi. Throughout time, there's been a number of natural disasters, most recently with floods. And this is really what the focus of your most recent visit that was funded by the AAR. How have people interpreted and made sense of these natural disasters? And what do they assert is behind climate change and its consequences? Yeah, yeah. So thanks, Christian. So as I sort of observed Uttarkashi over um, the course of more than a decade, the, the, the fever for development um, gripped the city. This fever was sometimes expressed in the development of these new religious enterprises, as I described. And, and religion became a kind of source of um, prosperity for Uttarkashi. But Uttarkashi is a place that has long been plagued by natural disaster. Um, in 1991, there was a, a massively destructive earthquake that struck the city. In 1998, there was another earthquake nearby to the city that caused damage and, and a great deal of fear in the city. In 2003, it um, the mountain that sits right above the town, the top of it simply collapsed and fell onto the town, crushed many people's homes and businesses. So this is a city that's already, um, it's in a seismically active zone, it's already accustomed to natural uh, disaster. And what we have seen in the last handful of years are the increasingly violent effects of climate change. And this is what brought me to Uttarkashi um, again early in 2014, because uh, over the over the several years previous, um, I and and my friends in Uttarkashi observed the monsoon season coming earlier and earlier, becoming more and more violent. And in 2012, there was um, massive flooding along the Ganges River, on which um, the city of Uttarkashi sits. This flooding did tremendous damage to the city, including um, destroying the footbridge that connected one part of the town to the other, a very important um, artery in this city. That flooding was um, superseded dramatically um, in terms of the violence that it brought with it and the damage that it did by floods that happened in June of 2013. And this flooding was the result of what in India is called cloud bursting, which refers to sort of um, storms in microclimates, the microclimates that are formed by the mountains of the Himalayas. And this cloud bursting caused um, uh, a great deal of flooding and damage in Uttarkashi and in the vicinity at one of the, at a, a place called Kedarnath, which is one of the four. Um, destination sites of the, the Chardam Yatra, the pilgrimage route I discovered, I discussed earlier. Uh, Kedarnat saw um, a, a virtual destruction of the entire city and, um, and only the, the temple itself was spared because a, a very large boulder happened to get lodged behind the temple. I saw a massive loss of life. 
in Kedarnat and in the region in general, in the vicinity of, of 10,000 people lost their lives in the matter of uh, a day or two as a result of this very, very heavy raining um, in Uttarkashi. So that's, that's the sort of long in, um, prelude to, to an answer to your question, which is really about how do people think about these disasters. So I had been... I'd become quite accustomed to hearing from people in interviews uh, overtones and, and of, of concern about the declining, what they regarded as the de declining moral um, atmosphere in the city as people in, in sort of um, local uh, languages, they chased money and, and developed, sometimes invented wholesale new religious uh, sites and organizations to attract followers um, among the people who were coming to the city. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this is a place that's long been associated with spirituality and retreat and meditation, and it was becoming more and more a commercial center in um, this region, so there there was already this this great concern that the city was was um, losing its its um, secure footing in this kind of devotional um, Hinduism, this attachment to the land, to the gods that resided in the land, and and so forth. So people had been predicting for for many years that the gods would simply get fed up and, and um, bring Uttarkashi to its knees through some kind of new natural disaster. So I applied to the AAR for this research grant on the hypothesis that I would return and hear precisely this, some kind of theodicy that explained this tremendously destructive um, episode in 2013 in terms of um, divine displeasure. And indeed, right after the flooding um, uh, had receded, there were many stories published in the news, and I heard, you know, via phone as I talked to my friends, um, uh, what people were saying, how they were speculating that particular gods or goddesses had wreaked this havoc. But when I returned in 2014, which was, this was in January 2014, so six months or so after the floods, I heard an entirely different story, and this was um, what I regarded as, as a kind of remarkable shift in people's understanding of um, the relationship of the divine to these lands. In January 2014, to, um, to put it um, somewhat briefly, what I discovered was instead a very widespread and very commonly articulated um, understanding of climate science and climate change and um, a, a, a widespread and really trenchant critique of government policy that had ignored climate change, that had continued to build the many, many dams um, along the various rivers which were responsible for a great deal of the uh, destruction during the flooding and um, a, a really trenchant uh, critique also of corruption that was 
responsible for you know, both of the previous developments. So this was it was uh, it was entirely unexpected on my part, and it was I suppose it's become a story in which uh, a religious studies scholar has has discovered that maybe here religion. Um, as an, as an explanatory device, cosmology as an explanatory device, receded into the background as people became more and more sophisticated about their understanding of their own environment. While there was this scientific explanation of perhaps the causes, it seemed that many said the genesis of their continued activism lay within their spiritual devotion to the land and the river. Can you talk a little bit about this relationship between the metaphysical and the scientific in relation to the motives behind localized forms of Hindu environmentalism? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so this, so Uttarkashi sits in, it's a, it's a cultural center in a, uh, a quite distinctive cultural region in the Himalayas. This region is called Garhwal. And Garhwal is it, um, it is home to the, the source of the Ganges River, which Hindus uh, throughout India regard as the most sacred of all rivers. It also houses many divine mountains, and it's, it's regarded by uh, Garhwalis themselves as well as others as Dev Bhumi, the land of the gods. So it has this, this um, very elevated place in Hindu cosmologies. So it's, it is not surprising that we have seen over um, most of the 20th century and increasingly since um, the 1980s or 90s religiously motivated uh, environmental activism along the Ganges River and that's in Garhwal and all the way down the river to um, uh, a holy city that's in the plains called Varanasi. We see a, a, a great deal of environmental activism that springs from people's devotion to the river and a passionate desire to see her, she's regarded as a goddess, to see her um, treated respectfully, to see her cleansed of um, uh, pollution. And this activism is um, often opposed directly to government policy and to the corruption that, that you know, has infected many um, uh, elements of the Indian bureaucracy that are responsible for the management of the river. Um, in in Uttarkashi itself, there has been uh, it, it's been a home for some of this environmental activism, and there are a couple of uh, spiritual retreat centers called ashrams along the river, whose whose primary purpose is to is to do grassroots activism among uh, people in villages and along the river to teach them uh, about uh, um, climate change, to understand climate change and, and receding glaciers, uh, and to encourage them to seek the protection of the river. The river is tremendously important for a number of uh, ritual reasons, um, as, as well as... as um, holding this place in Hindu cosmologies as, as a river that proceeds directly from the heavens. So these, these grassroots organizations are, are motivated by what we might think of as this, this uh, spiritual devotion to the river. And they employ as one of their uh, tools alongside 
the, the cultivation of a similar kind of attachment to the river among people in villages, um, they employ as a tool climate science. And, um, and so what we see in many of these organizations is this, this really um, intriguing kind of um, uh, combination of scientific and um, sort of religiously cosmological ways of understanding the river. And um, this activism is, uh, is quite distinctive to this part of India. Well, Brian, sounds like a really interesting project, and we look forward to the completion. Good luck. Thanks very much, Christian. <laughs>